Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So last week, we read about the first nine plagues of the Exodus, when God stretched out his mighty hand in judgment against Egypt. The Nile River was turned to blood. Frogs, gnats, and flies infested the land. Livestock died. People got sick. Locusts and hail destroyed crops. And the sky went dark for three days. Now, God had told Moses and Aaron this would happen if Pharaoh didn't let Israel go. But God had also said that he would intentionally harden Pharaoh's heart. And as a result, Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. Now, there were some moments when Pharaoh showed signs of obedience to God, only to quickly resume his rebellion and disobedience. Even after all these powerful signs, these amazing plagues, Pharaoh is the same guy now that he was at the beginning of the story. He is hard-hearted, just as God said he would be. But ultimately, God sending the plagues and hardening Pharaoh's heart had a dual purpose. Practically speaking, God did it all in order that Israel would be set free. That's the easy answer. But then if you zoom out to see the bigger picture, you see that God did all of these things in order that his power, his glory, his fame, and his name might be put on display for all to see might be known by everyone in Egypt. Because after the most powerful nation in the world is brought to its knees, and after its gods are exposed as imposters, mocked and defeated, there should no longer be any doubt at all that there is no other god but the Lord. Well, by now, Pharaoh's magicians and servants have recognized this. But as we start today in chapter 11, Pharaoh still hasn't budged. The one Egyptian responsible for setting God's people free still refuses to do so. So God unleashes his final plague on Egypt. It's the one that we've already been warned about. By far the most devastating plague of them all. This plague consists of harsh judgment and tragic death for the Egyptians. But it contains an atoning sacrifice And leads to triumphant salvation for the Israelites. And it all revolves around the blood of a spotless lamb. Poured out as a ransom for many. So let's begin in Exodus 11, starting in verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here to follow along. If you didn't bring one, we'll also have verses up on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, take one of those home with you. We are happy to let you have that Bible. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read from your word. Again, thank you that you so generously and so kindly and so clearly reveal yourself to us. There are so many things about you that we cannot fully comprehend. Your majesty and your glory and your power are just beyond what we can wrap our minds around completely. But you have revealed yourself to us so generously and so greatly that we can know a great deal about you. We don't have to guess about you. We don't have to speculate about you. We don't have to theorize about you. We don't have to 
come up with all kinds of crazy inventions about who you are or what you're like or what you've done or what you will do. We have this record in your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we read your word this morning, that you would challenge us and encourage us and convict us and inspire us. Whatever it is that we need at this moment, God, uh, I pray that you would provide it for us. And more than anything, I pray that we would realize what a privilege and what a joy we have to know you. We know you through your word. We know you through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended and one day will return. We know you because you've graciously given us your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would indwell us and shape us and form us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, again, I pray that we would leave here this morning not just knowing more about you already, but longing to know even more about you in the days and weeks ahead. Again, we love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by reading Exodus 11, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So this is it. It's really happening. No more warning shots. No more slaps on the wrist. No more waiting around. No more uncertainty about whether or not this plague might finally be the one that really turns the tide for Israel. God makes it clear that this is the final plague. This is it. This is the one that will cause Pharaoh to send the Hebrews packing after all their slavery, after all their waiting. The Israelites have found favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. The people who were once viewed as dirt, as slaves, will be sent out like royalty, just as God had promised. We saw that promise earlier in the book, chapter 3, starting in verse 21. God says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God's word is coming to pass because God's word always comes to pass. But picking up in chapter 11, starting in verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, 
either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's God speaking. Verse 8 seems to be Moses taking over. Moses says to Pharaoh, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The last time Moses spoke with Pharaoh, Pharaoh said that if he ever saw Moses in his neck of the woods again, Moses would die. And Moses responded and said, you know what, Pharaoh? Fine. You will never see me again. But it appears that Moses does make one more visit to Pharaoh. Maybe it's a continuation of the exchange at the end of chapter 10. Maybe Moses pokes his head in one final time before he's escorted out by security. But Moses warns Pharaoh about exactly what's coming with this final plague. He goes into excruciating detail about just how horrific this plague will really be. The firstborn in Egypt, man and beast, rich and poor, from the top of the food chain down to the very bottom, will die. Now, of course, this doesn't include the Israelites. They will be untouched because God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And, you know, you'd think that after every other plague that Moses has promised has come to pass... After God has been at nine for nine, after God has been batting a thousand, you'd think that with God's perfect track record of fulfilling his word, and with his stakes being this high, you would think that Pharaoh would obey, wouldn't you? But he doesn't even respond. He is still hard-hearted. Now, this final plague is shocking, isn't it? So much death, so much grief. No doubt it's related to Egypt's treatment of God's people for all these years. Especially Pharaoh's old policy earlier in the book about throwing Hebrew baby boys in the Nile River to drown. But this plague, even though it seems so much more drastic, so much more heart-wrenching, so much more violent than all the others combined, Really, this plague shouldn't shock you if you've been reading the story. Like so many other events in Exodus, God explicitly said this would happen well in advance. Going back again, chapter 4, starting in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, again, this is before Moses has ever even returned to Egypt, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
Again, God warned us about this. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But before this plague actually takes place, God is going to give Moses extensive and detailed instructions about how the Israelites should prepare. He's going to show how it is that God is going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. God tells them exactly how it is that they will be spared. But in order for this to happen, the Israelites must respond accordingly. They will be spared from the plague. They will be delivered out of Egypt. But it will only happen on God's terms. We see those terms in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregations of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Exodus will be such a bedrock moment in Israel's history. It will have such seismic impact on the lives of the Hebrews moving forward that they are instructed to reorganize their entire calendar around this event, around this one night. And the instructions are clear. Each household takes a spotless lamb. They sacrifice it. They hastily eat its flesh with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They take the lamb's blood paint it on their doorposts, and go to bed. And while the Israelites sleep soundly, God himself will pass through the land and execute judgment on Egypt. The firstborn will die. But those who are marked by the blood of a sacrificial lamb will be spared from God's wrath. They will be passed over. Now as the story progresses, the Israelites obey God's orders. 
And the plague occurs exactly when, how, and where God said it would. Egyptian mothers and fathers wake up in the middle of the night to find their firstborn dead. A great cry arises in Egypt, not unlike Israel's cries that God heard in chapter 2. Not unlike Israel's cries that Pharaoh ignored in chapter 5. But this time Pharaoh hears these cries. He says in chapter 12, starting in verse 31. Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Quite a change of heart on Pharaoh's part, I would say. But the Israelites leave in haste, as they were commanded to do. They don't have to wait around for bread to rise. It's unleavened. They don't have to worry about the leftover lamb chops they had to leave in the fridge. There were no leftovers. They listened to God's commands. They had their belts, their sandals, their staffs ready before they went to bed. And some 600,000 men, not counting the women and the children, think about that number. Some 600,000 men leave Egypt victoriously. They take the silver, they take the gold, they take the jewelry, they take the clothing we talked about earlier with them. And just like that, after some 430 years of brutal slavery, Some 430 years of wondering whether or not God remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some 430 years of suffering and oppression and ruthless taskmasters and hard service and bitter lives. Just like that, it all comes to an end. One night, one event, one plague. Just like that, a new era has begun. So I guess the question now is, well, what do they do now? Where do the Israelites go from here? Which route will they take to get to the promised land they've heard so much about? What are 600,000 men, not counting women and children, going to eat? What are they going to drink? What if they're attacked by enemies? They probably don't have any weapons. Maybe they're wondering if leaving Egypt was a better idea in theory than it is in practice. And lastly, have the Israelites really seen Pharaoh for the last time? Or will they see him again? We'll answer those questions in the weeks ahead, but this morning I'd like to ask a few other questions. Focus on a few other points. Question number one. What does this Old Testament story have to do with us today? And more specifically, more pointedly, what's so important about it for followers of Jesus? How do the Old Testament passages that we've read today look ahead to Christ in the New Testament? You know, if we're really being honest, sometimes answering that question can be pretty challenging. You pick up your Bible You open the Old Testament, you've heard your small group leader or your pastor or some trusted Christian friend tell you that all of the Bible points to Jesus. 
Everything points to the cross. It's all about Jesus from front to back. But then you open the Old Testament and you read some passages that seem bizarre or obscure or confusing. And you feel like you really have to do some major theological and interpretive gymnastics to find even the slightest connection to Jesus. How in the world can this story point our eyes to Christ? But thankfully, this is not one of those passages. In fact, I would argue that it is almost impossible to not see Christ repeatedly in the verses that we've read today in Exodus. In many ways, we Christians should have a pretty easy time relating to the Israelites in the story of the Passover. That's because we, too, have trusted God for deliverance from slavery. We believe that we, too, have been passed over by God, spared from his judgment. And we, too, believe that our salvation revolves around the sacrificial blood of a spotless lamb. We believe that this blood is what marks us and assures us as being saved. Before he went to the cross, Jesus clearly viewed his life and his death, his broken body and shed blood, as a sacrifice for the salvation of others. In Mark 10:45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to Jesus as our Passover lamb. First Peter 1.19 speaks of the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus as the lamb some 28 times. The Israelites in Egypt may have been the first of God's people to trust in the blood of a lamb for their deliverance, for their salvation. But they wouldn't be the last. We follow in their footsteps. However, while it ought to be easy for Christians to relate to the Israelites in today's passages, there are also some major differences between our reality as believers in Jesus and the Israelite situation in Egypt. For example, unlike the story in Exodus, we Christians believe that it wasn't just any spotless lamb that was sacrificed for our salvation. It was the firstborn son of God himself, fully God and fully man, perfect in righteousness and obedience. Jesus didn't offer up an animal on our behalf. That wouldn't have been sufficient for our salvation. He offered up himself on our behalf on the cross, bearing the weight of the judgment we deserved for our sin. And he doesn't offer himself up repeatedly. He doesn't offer himself up once a year. He offered himself up one time. For the sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future. And unlike the story in Exodus, we Christians believe that Jesus' blood doesn't just spare us from the tragic death of a firstborn child. But by faith in him, we are passed over from eternal suffering, eternal separation from God. As Paul says in the book of Romans, we have all sinned 
We have all fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve his wrath. The wages of sin is death. And it is only by faith in Christ that we are justified by God's grace as a gift. Redeemed by Jesus, the one who God put forward as our sacrifice to take his wrath away from us. And unlike the story in Exodus, we Christians believe that our lamb wasn't sacrificed to secure our freedom from physical bondage, physical slavery. He secured our freedom from something far worse, the bondage and slavery of sin. In John 1.29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's that word again, the Lamb. Christians have read Isaiah 53 as referring to Jesus ever since his death and resurrection. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant, Jesus, as a lamb that is led to slaughter. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him, the lamb, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. So again, it's incredibly difficult to read the passages we've read today in the book of Exodus and not think about Jesus. But we also rejoice that the salvation brought about by the blood of the Lamb in Exodus, as remarkable as it was back then, it pales in comparison to the salvation we find in the blood of our Lamb, Jesus Christ. Now, as we said earlier, there are still a lot of questions about what comes next for the newly liberated Israelites in the book of Exodus. Again, where will they go? How will they get there? What will all these people eat and drink? What about their enemies? And have they really seen the last of Pharaoh? Well, again, we're going to save those answers for the weeks ahead. But we do already have one answer for what comes next for the Israelites. Chapters 12 and 13 make it abundantly clear what the Israelites should do now. Before God addresses any of those other questions, where they go and what they eat and what they drink, before God addresses any of those next steps, the Israelites are commanded over and over and over and over again not to forget who they are, not to forget where they've come from, Not to forget what God has done for them. The single biggest way that the Israelites will remember all of this is through the annual practice of that Passover meal. We talked about it earlier in the service when Terry did the communion meditation. Through that Passover meal, the Israelites will remember how God brought about their salvation. They'll remember the lamb that was sacrificed. They'll remember the blood on their doorposts. They'll remember the plague they were spared from. They'll remember the haste with which they left. They will remember that they were once slaves who belonged to Pharaoh. But they'll be reminded that they are now children who belong to God. And through this meal, the Israelites would pass these truths on to their kids. It would be kept fresh and alive for every generation following them, even for those people who weren't there When it happened. In fact, this meal is so important 
that anyone who didn't remember it would be cut off. Well, as Christians, we too must remember who we are. We too must remember where we've come from. And we too must remember what God has done for us. We are called to remember that we are God's people now. His sons, his daughters, and his servants. Empowered, enabled, and called to live like it. We were once rebels and enemies. Slaves. Alienated from God by our sin and condemned to judgment. But God has redeemed us. God has delivered us. God has purchased us with the broken body and shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. This is what we're called to remember every single Sunday when we gather to worship. It's what we remember every single Sunday when we pass the bread and the juice. But we remember this every other day as well. And if we ever think that we no longer need the Lamb's blood for our salvation, or if we somehow convince ourselves that we never really needed it to begin with, then we too will be cut off. It was the Passover meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples the night that he was betrayed. But Jesus took that Passover meal and transformed it into something new. Originally, it was meant to bring about remembrance of God's deliverance of the Israelites in the book of Exodus. But Jesus transformed it into what we Christians call the Lord's Supper, or communion. This is the regular meal that reminds us of our salvation, of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. The means by which God has delivered us from our penalty, our slavery, of sin. We read earlier Matthew 26, 26 through 28. We're going to read it again. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many For the forgiveness of sins. The Israelites ate and drank to remember their deliverance from Egypt when the blood of a lamb was painted on their doorposts. We Christians eat and drink to remember our own deliverance from sin, judgment, and death because the blood of Christ was painted on his cross. So may we never forget who we are where we've come from, and what God did to get us here. May we never forget our Passover lamb, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, sinners like you and sinners like me. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for these reminders of who we are and where we've come from and what you've done for us. As we see in the book of Exodus, you are a God with a track record of deliverance. You are a God with a track record of saving people. You are a God with a track record of forgiving sins and calling people into relationship with you and generously offering yourself to them. 
That includes the Israelites back in the Old Testament. That includes the earliest Christians who followed Jesus. That includes the Christians throughout history who have preached and lived and died spreading your gospel. And that includes us sitting in this room right now. We have more in common with those Old Testament Israelites than we might think. We have more in common with those early Christians we read about in the New Testament than we might think. Because we too have been saved. We too have been forgiven. We too have been called. We too have been covered and purchased, bought by the blood of a spotless lamb. Not just any lamb, not an animal, but rather by the Son of God. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. And, of course, we ask that you help us remember this day in and day out. We live in a world with so many distractions, so many priorities, so many things we can pay our attention to, so many things that we're told to love and pursue and value and remember. But, Father, I pray that we would remember this above everything else, that every other promise we're given, every other priority that demands our attention, every other task, every other responsibility, every other distraction that might come our way, that it would all pale in comparison to our memory of what you've done for us in Christ. Help us never forget that, even if we forget all kinds of other things in this world. Remind us day in and day out of who we are, where we've come from, and what you've done for us through Christ. Again, we love you, we worship you, we glorify you, we thank you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.